Good morning, everybody. Morning. Thank you, Carlton. Um, I just have to say, uh, this is this is my favorite place to preach. Um, I was away last week preaching at a uh, a big suburban white church. Um, to which you go, why? Why would you want to do that? Um, some of you know, may not know, part of my, I feel like, call kingdom ministry is actually helping churches trying to be more multi-ethnic and reach out to their communities. And so it's tough. I don't like it sometimes, but it's an opportunity um, and uh, something that I feel the Lord calling me to do. But every time I go, when I had handful, some folks come with me, I, I, I miss new community. I miss my home. Um, more than anything, I, I miss this place because I could honestly tell you, there is... And CC knows this. We talk about this a lot. There, there is a, no place like here where I feel like I can basically say anything. Um, and to know that some of you might not like it, but you'll listen and actually be challenged by it. You know, I, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that as a, as a pastor. Um, and... This sermon series that we've been on, um, sent. You need to know something about our church, and that is this. When we started this church, we never set out 15 years ago planting it to build a great church for ourselves. We actually set out a church where our mission and vision was this. We, we believe that if a critical mass of people who follow Jesus as Lord live their lives in a way that expressed the gospel wherever they were, that we could change the fabric of this city and possibly even change the world. And we believe fundamentally, you need to listen to this, you need to hear this. Fundamentally, we believe from the get-go that the city will not be changed because you show up on Sundays. The city will not be changed because you're in small groups during the week. The city will be changed when we embrace this identity as followers of Jesus, that we are sent people on mission, wherever we are, Monday through Saturday, and live our lives. Like, that is the only way that the world can be changed. Now, that, unfortunately, runs so countercultural to American Christianity, where we have this perception that the church, and I'll get into this, that the church exists for us. The church doesn't exist for us. We are the church. And we exist for the world. Massive difference. Massive difference. And this takes for some of us years to unpack and years to sort of brainwash out because many of us come to church and we go, what you got for me? And uh, that is not found in scripture. So the text that we've been on uh, is John 17, the prayer of Jesus. Verses 13 to 21, I want to read it and, uh, and, 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 and we'll get into this text. This is sort of the foundational text for this sermon series. And, and Jesus, in his last hours literally on earth, last hours on earth, prays this prayer. And there is so much here. We can spend a year on this prayer alone. Now, verse 13, I'm coming to you, Jesus praying. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. 
I've given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I don't belong to the world. I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They, they you see, don't belong to the world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all of you who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray, Father, that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I'm in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe. So that the world will believe that you sent me. Verse 18 could, in my opinion, be kind of the, the summary verse of the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. So you have the first part, which is just as you sent me into the world. Let's get something straight right away. And that is this. God is a God of mission. You go, where do you get that from? The word sent literally is missio de, where we get the word, English word missionary from. God is a God of mission. I heard one amen back there, so I'm glad it's good news for somebody. Every page of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation pulsates with this message. God is a God of mission. Missions is not a department in a church. It's a description of the very character of God. Mission is not some department in a church. It's a description of the very character of God. You cannot read your Bible without coming across in every page this message that God is on a mission. He's seeking. He's reaching out. He is healing. He is redeeming. He is restoring all of creation. God is on a God of mission. Do you believe in God? God is a God of mission. Are you committed to Jesus? Jesus is a Jesus of mission. Are you filled with the Spirit? The Spirit is a spirit of mission. You cannot get near to this God without having your heart stirred for mission. Do you hear me? You cannot get near to this God without getting your heart stirred. Why? God is a God of mission. There's a second part, though. As you sent me into the world, Jesus, now I am sending you into the world. Here's the mind-boggling thing about Christianity, you see? The, the work of restoring all of creation, us and God, us, each other, and the world, didn't end with Jesus. God's plan from the very beginning was who? God's plan from the very beginning to finish this work was who? Church was what? The, us. It's the church. The mind-boggling thing, God says, this work that I sent, I, I, I began by sending my son. I, I am now enlisting the church to, to finish this work. I'm going to say something that might be sort of counterintuitive. There is a church because there is mission. There is a church because there is mission, not vice versa. The church doesn't have a mission. It's so much, it's so much as the church has a mission. It's that there is a mission, and God says, now I'm listening to the church actually to cooperate and partner with me in that mission. The church isn't the focus. What is the focus? The mission of God. Do you know why that's important? 
That's why we say the church doesn't exist for us. We are the church existing for the world. And when you understand this, you realize that the moment you get saved, you have an identity that forms you and informs you. And that identity is not church shopper. That identity is not spiritual consumer. That identity is not Sunday Christian. That identity is sent people. Your identity. And when you understand this, we shift from consumer Christianity. What do you, what do you have from me to how can I serve? By the way, can I just say this? Here's how you know that 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 you've understood this. See, people that don't understand their sentness, they think about the church in the third person. They, they say stuff like, I go to new community instead of, I am new community. You think of the church as something out there to sort of critique and criticize instead of going, church is me. It's you. It's us. Stop going to church. Be the church. Stop going to church. Be the church. Are you with me, church, this morning? Are you with me? See, this is so counter. This is so. I See, if I preach stuff like this to typical suburban church in America, they'd be like, get them out of here. The church doesn't exist to meet our needs. We exist to meet the needs of the church. That's why what we're here about, and if you're church shopping, I'm glad you're here so that you could hear this. When you're looking for a church, please find the church that will equip you, train you to be a missionary in your life Monday through Friday the best. If a church helps you do that, go there and do there. Don't go to a church just because the sermon is good or worship. Go to a church because the church exists to be the equipping base, the training base to prepare you and to scatter you for mission. That's why we exist. Everything we do around here is for that purpose. And if we're not doing it well, let us know. Because what we exist for is to equip you to be on mission. Couple of ramifications of this, real quick, before we launch in. So, 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 sentence we talked about two weeks ago is about joining God in His work. It's about joining God. See, I'm saying all these really counterintuitive things I need you to know. It's about joining God in His work. Ephesians 2.10. He creates it in Christ Jesus to join Him in the work that He does, the good work He has gotten ready for us to do, work we better be doing. I have really good news. Do you know what this means? First and foremost, the ultimate responsibility for mission doesn't rest with us. It rests with God. Is that good news to anybody? Ultimate response, and not up to us. <laughs> good Lord, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if it was up to us. God goes, no, it's, up to, it's my mission. But there's a challenge here. The challenge is that God calls us to join him in his work. Cooperate with what he wants to do in the world. But we don't wake up in the morning thinking, what does God have for me to do? We wake up in the morning and go, I got some things I want to do. I hope God helps me. There's a fundamental difference between, I got some things I want to do. I hope God helps me. And there are some things that God wants me to do. How can I join him in on that? Kingdom people don't ask God to bless what you're doing. You know what kingdom people do? Kingdom people go, what is God doing that I could join him in on? Do you know why? Do you know why? Do you know why? 
because it's already blessed. By the way, I can't take credit for that. That's my main man, Bono, who said that. Find out what God is doing. Bono said this. And join him in on that work. Do you know why? It's already blessed. Let me ask you something. Is that your posture? Do you get up in the morning and go, God's got some things he wants me to do. It's already blessed. How, how do I join? Can I, can, can I challenge you with a dangerous prayer? I dare, I dare, I triple dare some of you to pray this tomorrow morning. I triple, quadruple dare you to pray. I'm going to put it up. Ready? Here's a prayer. Here's a prayer. God, God, here's a prayer. Ready? Interrupt whatever I'm doing so I can join you in on what you're doing. Ho, ho. I triple dare you. Some of y'all. Some of y'all. I, I dare you to pray that God interrupt, disrupt whatever I'm doing so I can join you on what you're doing. I got this little relationship going on. Oh, God, interrupt whatever I'm doing. I got the little project, little career goal. Oh, I'm, interrupt whatever. Are you serious about being on mission? I triple dare you to pray this prayer tomorrow. The next principle, real quick, where, wherever we are, God sends us. Think about that. Wherever we are, God sends us. In other words, think about your calling as where you are right now. You're not there. Come on, guys. Do you really think where you are, where you work, where you go to school, do you really think you're there by accident? Do you? God says, no, I've already gone ahead of you. I've already prepared some things for you to do. And I need you to join me in on that. That means being sent isn't about waiting for some future opportunity. It's not about when I get that job, graduate school, when I get a promotion. Being sent is not waiting for some future opportunity. It's about recognizing my calling now. In my neighborhood, in my school. In my workplace with these people right now, right now, wherever we are, God says, man, when this shift happens in our lives, see, I have, in this sermon series, I have some people come and go, Pastor Peter, I really, I really like the idea of being sent, but you know, I'm so busy. See, here's, here's, here's the issue and the problem with why this requires a fundamental rewiring of our brain. Living sent isn't about creating some missional margin in our lives. You know, I got I to gotta carve out some time. It's about looking at your entire life and going, God is at work. How do I join him on that? It's not about creating little missional margin and figure. It's about everything that I do and the way I'm doing it. How do, how do I go about doing what God has for me to do? Hmm? With these people in that workplace. And to you guys... Christians are like manure. Wait for it. Christians are like manure. You spread them out and everything grows better. Wait for it. But you pile them up in one place and it stings terribly. Can I get an amen? Man, I, I, you guys, 
this sermon series is kicking my butt. I mean, all these sermons are kicking my butt. This sermon is kicking my butt because I've had some hard questions to ask about how I'm living this. One thing real quick, uh, that is, uh, lastly, living sent is an overflow of grace before his obedience to command. I love this quote from Tim Dearborn of World Vision. Listen to what he says. Lack of interest in mission is not caused by an absence of compassion or lack of information or exhortation. Lack of interest in mission is not remedied by more shocking statistics, more gruesome stories, or more emotionally manipulative commands to obedience. Lack of mission is best remedied by intensifying people's passion for Jesus so that the passions of his heart become the passions of our hearts. This can't be manipulated and forced. You've got to be struck with the beauty of the gospel. Otherwise, this thing is going to be a burden and a duty and obligation rather than an expression of joy. How are you doing? Come on, come on. How are you doing? How am I doing? Are we living sent? Are we living into our sentness? Well, today, uh, uh, you'll see why this kicked my butt, CC. Today, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at something that, that might not seem so obvious because when we talk about Christian mission and sentness, we get lost in the details and you could miss the forest for the trees. And mission, immediately you and I go to ministry of word or ministry of deed. You know, it's helping and serving and, uh, and then sharing the gospel. But according to this text, there's something here that kicked my butt this week. Because look at what Jesus says is one of, maybe the primary way that you and I be on mission. Listen to what he says. Verse 17. See if you can catch it. Verse 17, Jesus prays, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Then verse 19, Jesus says, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they could be made holy by your truth. So verse 17, Jesus says, God, make them holy. Verse 19, Jesus says, make them holy. And smack in the middle is mission. In other words, why would Jesus put a verse on mission sandwiched between two verses on how much he's committed to our holiness? Here's why. Living scent requires holiness of life. Living scent requires Required for effective mission, Jesus says, is your personal holiness. Why are you supposed to grow in personal holiness? Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want. From. Why does God want holiness for you? We say for Jesus' sake, yeah, but you know what else? He says, for the world's sake. Now, let's just, <laughs> immediately we have a challenge. And the challenge is this. When I say the word holy, see, see, what happens when I say the word holy in typical church? People get all kinds of distorted views, right, of what holiness is. I know, I know. You guys are just, I, I, just for me, I grew up, I'm a church kid. So when I grew up holiness, holiness was equated with lack of joy. 
Can I get an amen? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Holy, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Some of us that grew up in church. Holiness equates a lack of joy, right? So the more something lacked joy, the holier it was. You know, like church services. The more holy it is, the more it lacks joy. Why are church services so dour and so... Because it's supposed to be holy. The problem is you can't reconcile that with Scripture. Because the holiest person who ever lived on the face of the planet, his name is what? Jesus, who was holiness personified, holiness of skin. Do you know? I wish I had time to preach this. Maybe I will. Do you know what his first miracle was? His first miracle recorded in the book of John is he turned what? He turned water into wine at a wedding party. The picture that you see of Jesus, the holiest person who walked on the face of the earth, didn't look anything like some of the Korean deacons and elders I grew up with. Okay? The, the, picture, of, the picture of Jesus in the Gospels is someone who LOL'd. Alright? I couldn't do that like 15 years ago. People are like, what the heck? He laughed out loud and often, and he invited people into enjoyment of good food, culture, and friends. So much so that the accusation labeled against him from the religious leaders was what? He is a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners and tax collectors. This holiest person who walked on the face of the planet is the guy who walks into the temple and he's overturning tables. Think of the amount of authority and power he has to do that. But he's the same guy that little children wanted to sit on his lap. And prostitutes, prostitutes felt safe and secure around him. Holy. 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 Is this not the Jesus we follow? Is this not the Jesus in whose footsteps? This is the Jesus who has an, who could laugh out loud. I think he had an incredible smile. An infectious holiness. So let's be biblical about what holy means, okay? So don't think serious, aloof, lacking joy, doubt. Holiness. Let's be biblical. Here's what holiness, literally, the word in, in, in Hebrew is the word kadesh, which means set apart, separate, sacred, totally other. New Testament, the Greek word is hagias, which literally means set apart and sacred. And the word for church in Greek is ekklesia, which literally means called out once. You put all this stuff together and holiness literally is to be different. It's to be distinct. It's to be set apart. So here's my question for you. How distinct and different are you at your work? From your coworkers. Uh, How distinct and different in terms of your character and speech are you compared to your roommates? Let me put it this way. When people see you, do they want to be like you? Because you're like Jesus. See, doesn't it make sense to me that the more we're like Jesus, the more people will want to follow Jesus? How distinct and different are you from people who don't know Jesus? Come on, come on, come on. Holy. Holy. We need to stop giving people excuses not to believe in God. Can I say that again? We need to, people in this country, you know what I hate hearing? I believe in God, but I don't believe in organized religion. 
I don't think people would say that if we live the way of Jesus. Some of you in this room have never found Christianity compelling. <laughs> Some of you have found never Christianity. You're here because a friend invited you, but you've never found Christianity compelling. Do you know why? I have a guess. It's because you've never been good friends with the holy person. It might be because you've never been in deep relationship with someone who was living the way of holiness. Benjamin Franklin, who never bought Christianity, by the way, was really good friends with a guy named George Whitfield, a famous 18th century preacher and evangelist. Benjamin Franklin gave to Whitfield's ministry. He, he, he supported his orphanage. He wrote to Whitfield. And it was because of Whitfield that Benjamin Franklin reportedly said this, I can never quite buy this Christianity, but I have tremendous respect for it. I want to see churches everywhere. <sighs> A person may not believe in Christianity, but it's really hard to dismiss it when you're in relationship with someone who is distinct different and set apart why else would jesus listen to me please why else would jesus not pray god i pray that they'd be eloquent i pray that they'd be fantastic at preaching i pray they'd be fat why would jesus of all things say i pray that you would be what say with me you would be what holy some of you go if i just you know invite them to church here here you preach people aren't interested in preachers anymore can i just say that they're not interested in sermons do you know what they're interested in your life they're interested in your life. They're inter- Even if preachers, people come here, I know what they're thinking. You're, you're, you know, you're somebody invited. You're looking at me. The question you're saying is, do you live it? Do you live it? Can you walk the walk? Can you live it? I'm not saying don't invite people. Invite people. But what I'm saying is, you and your life is an invitation. What is it saying? What is it saying? You know, Jesus actually describes for us here, as we think about holiness, what it would look like if we live this. And the balance that Jesus talks about here. Are, are you still with me? Are you still with me? Did I lose you? Are you still thinking about, am I holy? Are you? Good, good, because I need you to think about that. Okay. Jesus actually describes here what our lives would look like if we lived the way of Jesus and true, distinct holiness. And the balance that Jesus talks about here, almost nobody does. Because if you did it, we could all go on vacation and the world will be changed. But hardly anybody does it here. Here's the incredible balance that Jesus talks about, about what it means to be holy. And if you grew up in church, you may have heard these things before. Verse 14. The world hates them because they do not belong to the world. Just as I don't belong to the world. Then he also says, but I'm not asking you, though, to take them out of the world. Then he says, I am sending them into the world. The balance, you're not of the world. You're not out of the world. You're what? Sent into. You're not of the world. Verse 14. You're not of the world, Jesus says. There's no kingdom impact. There's no kingdom witness. If, if we are just like everybody else, if our lives have no distinct, different, holy 
you, Peter, about it. If people look at you and me and don't see anything unique in the way we live, Jesus is literally saying, why should anybody believe that the Father sent me? You're not, by the way, can I just say something? See, this is the kind of thing I said, I could preach here, but I can't preach in another church. It is the height of weirdness to me that Christians expect non-Christians who don't know Jesus to behave like they do when the church can't even get their act together. Can I get an amen? It is the height of weirdness to me that Christians are the most judgmental people. We look at how Christians go, how, we expect people to know Jesus, to act like Jesus, when we can't even get our house in order. So I'm just going to put this out there. As long as Christians continue to contribute to the divorce industry, the divorce statistics, the porn industry, and we accept acceptable sins like glut, greed, gluttony, and, and gossip, we have no business telling the world how to act. Judgment, the Bible says, begins with the house of God. Are you distinct? Secondly, though, he says, you're not to be out of the world. And some people have done exactly what Jesus prayed that we would not do. Some of us see nothing redemptive about the culture, and we work really hard to insulate our kids and our families from the very world Jesus says, I need you to reach. And the result is a Christian bubble. A... An evangelical subculture. Anybody familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. So we don't go to go. go. I, I just was going to say something, but I'm going to just hold my tongue. See, when you're out of the world, when you're out of the world, you don't see the world as a mission field to winsomely reach for Christ. You see the culture as an enemy to be fought. Please hear me on this. When, when you are out of the world, you don't see the culture, the very world Jesus, I need you to reach, to winsomely reach for Christ. We see it as an enemy to be fought. And so we engage in what many people have called culture wars. And, and I look at our country, I look at the churches in America, the event, and, 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 and what the fallout of culture war towards the world has been. Can I just say something? Culture war mangles mission. It takes relationship completely out of the equation. And it turns us from peaceful ambassadors of Christ to culture warriors for Christianity. I'm going to say something right here. Our treasure is not Christianity. Our treasure is Christ. Our hope is not in a Christian nation. Our hope is in a Christ-saturated universe. I got to keep going. We're not about Judeo-Christian values. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Are you, are you hearing me? Our hope is not in presidents and princes. Our hope is in the king of kings who rules with all authority. Culture warrior Christians worry about the world changing the church. Kingdom people are more worried about the church changing the world. You see the fundamental difference. You're not of the world. You're not out of the world. Jesus says, I send you into the world. See, see, you know what I love about this? Jesus doesn't just go, I send you in the world. It's too passive. He says what? I send you into. Into. Deep engagement is what he's getting at. I want you to be deeply engaged. 
I want you to be deeply engaged in word and deed. The serving that we are called to requires direct contact. Have you thought about this? Christianity is a contact sport. You cannot, you cannot wash the feet of the world unless you're willing to touch it. Jesus says, don't withdraw and attack. Don't, don't assimilate and be just like all of your friends and all your coworkers. So there's nothing distinguishing about you. He says, but be sent into deeply engage the people and the culture as missionaries to send people into the very world that I sent you into. Be deeply engaged. When Jesus sent out the 12, he didn't send them out with the manual on evangelism. He didn't say, hey, 12, come on over here. Let me teach you how to exegete a text and preach really, really well. He didn't go, let me show you how to do really good marketing. And yet they changed the entire world for Jesus. Maybe the problem was we have the evangelism manuals, but we don't have holiness. Maybe the problem is we have a lot of knowledge, but we're not filled with the Spirit. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You see why I kicked my butt this week? Um. As I, thought about, as I thought about the early church and as I thought about, um, I love church history. I love church. Did you guys know that? I love church history. And, 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 and when I look at the early church and see how they lived this balance, see how they lived this balance, it's striking to me on where we are as a church today in living scent. There's an old ancient document. I, I, I quote this every three, four years. Some of you guys know. It's an old ancient document called the Epistle, Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. Mathetes is not a name. It just literally means disciple. And Diognetus, some people think, was a tutor to the emperor Marcus Aurelius. And, and, and this is a letter that's written defending Christianity to this non-Christian. And in an excerpt, he talks about why Christianity literally flourished in the Roman Empire as a small tiny minority. And I'll read you an excerpt and then I'll talk about four things that truly made the church distinct. Let me tell you why Christianity is spreading so fast. Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens for every foreign country is to them their native land and their native land is to them every foreign country. See, they marry and have children, but they don't kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and yet make many rich. They're short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They're treated outrageously, but they behave respectfully. They're mocked, but they bless in return. And when they do good, they're attacked. When they're attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. Do you know what made them so beautifully attractive? Four things he mentions real quick. One, complete absence of racism. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens. For every foreign country is to them their native land, and their native land is to them every foreign country. The Christians, early Christians, were Jews, Romans, Greeks, Africans. But they were Christians first, and Jews, Romans, Africans, Asians second. 
See, here's the thing. You gotta, what Christianity did was it gave them a unique, distinct identity as those being in Christ first. And here's what they did. Instead of obliterating their culture and race, it reprioritized it. They were followers of Jesus first and they prioritized their race and culture. So what they did is they were able to look at their race and culture and they go, there's some things about this that we celebrate because we are made in the image of God, including our race and culture. But they said our culture and our race is also tainted by sin. So I don't have a superiority attitude about my race and culture. And I can look at other cultures and celebrate and appreciate it. And in a culture and time in which racism was woven into the fabric of society, Christianity came along and it cut it to its knees. Secondly, a high view of life. They don't kill the unwanted. Infanticide was common. You had a girl baby. Parents would throw the baby in the water, in the river. Masters could kill their slaves without any repercussions. Christians come along and they go, every single life is made in the image of God and valuable. Third, an unusual view of sex. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed. They were promiscuous with their money and resources, but they were very stingy about their bodies. The first Christians came along and they said, by the way, they're living in a culture in which their understanding of sex is like today. Sex is like an appetite. You're hungry, you eat. You feel sexy, you have sex. Nothing about it. Christians come along and they go, sex has been created by God for permanent, exclusive, legal commitment to another person. And you can't use it for any other reason. Any other reason. Exclusive, permanent, legal commitment to another. And these guys who grew up in pagan understanding of sex, once they embraced Christian view of sexuality, they were liberated and they changed their culture. Lastly, they were radically generous. They share their table with everyone but they're poor and yet make me rich. They're short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They were short of things because they were so generous and yet they have plenty of everything. You know why? They embraced a radically simpler lifestyle. How did the Roman Empire, with its infanticide, with its decadence, with its immorality, turn Christian within 200 years? The distinct, different holy lives of those who follow Jesus. People look at Christians and say, what have happened to them to make them that way? We've never seen anything like it. By the way, can I just say this? If Christians today live the way of Jesus, you and I would be absolutely inexplicable to our culture. Can I give you an example? People come and go, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're they're Christians. They go to that church. They care a lot about abortion and gay marriage. They go to one church. There's another set of Christians. They go to that church over there. They care a lot about issues of racial justice and the poor and being radically generous. But they go to two separate churches. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling me, whoa, whoa. 
You're telling me there are Christians alive in the 21st century, 2017, in America that care about abortion, gay marriage, and the poor, and issues of race? There are Christians walking around that actually care about all of that because they follow Jesus? Get the heck out of here. Is your life inexplicable to your friends and family because you follow the way of Jesus? Is your life inexplicable? Let me give you one other example. I'm almost done. Your life will be inexplicable if you are someone today as a follower of Jesus who is biblically orthodox and radically loving at the same time. You are biblically orthodox and right. What do I mean? You are someone who says, I believe in the authority of the scriptures, but I'm radically, whoa, 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 you're orthodox? No, no, no. That means you're aloof. That means you're judgmental. That means you're, you know, concerned. No, no, no. I believe that God's word is my ultimate authority, but I'm radically loving at the same time. Your friends will not know what to do with you. Loving you doesn't mean that I agree with you but it means that I will sacrifice for you. Loving you doesn't mean that I, but I will sacrifice. Do you know why the early Christians lived the way they did? See, when they came along, the Romans said, they're going to make the worst citizens ever. Why? Because they believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, truth, and the life, you're going to be exclusive and judgmental and narrow-minded. And Christians came along, and they made the best citizens ever. Do you know why? People go, if you're a fundamentalist, you're going to be exclusive and narrow and judgmental. No, it all depends on what you're fundamental about. What if what you and I were fundamental about was someone who is hanging on a cross? Listen, this is what we're fundamental about. We're hanging on a cross, and there are people taunting him and judging him, and he says what? Father, forgive them. They know what they do. What if the thing that we are fundamental about, we are passionate about, is someone who is hanging on a cross, okay? Who is hanging on a cross, and as he is suffering, even unto death, to those that are persecuting and crucifying him, instead of attacking, instead of withdrawing, he lays down his life for his enemies. What if the thing that you and I are fundamental about is a Savior who is hanging on a cross and he is laying down his life in love and service to the very same people who are rejecting him? If you and I are fundamental about that man and that Savior, we will not Look like the world. And we will not withdraw. We'll be inexplicable. Because people will go, we've never seen any. How? We follow him. We follow him. Pray with me. There's a heaviness every time. And often, when I preach sermons like this, 
there's a heaviness that comes because if you're like me, I immediately go, I am so far from living a life of holiness. I'm so far from being distinct and different. So I need to remind myself this morning before I take communion, before I take the elements, if you're anything like me, I need to remind myself this morning that there is grace for me, that there is grace for you. I need to remind myself, you see, that when he's on that cross, he's not just dying for them out there. He's dying for me. He's dying for me so that I would be holy, so that I would be acceptable, so that I would be righteous. And he reminds me this morning that he is committed to me and committed to my holiness. Not just for his sake, but the sake of the world. So if you need to be reminded this morning, like me, that you are desperately in need of grace, you're at the right place. Before you come up and take the elements, confess your sins. Confess the ways in which you have not followed the way of Jesus this week in which you have gone astray. Simply ask for forgiveness and embrace his forgiveness and receive it.